and welcome back to Blockchain Won't Save the World. It's the season two finale, and as is tradition, we're doing another roast. Today, it's the roast of the metaverse, and I've got some incredible individuals with me with deep metaverse experience to help talk through the good, the bad, and the ugly of what we see in the metaverse today. So with us on the show, we've got Hulke van Zaydam, founder of Odyssey Momentum. We've got Keir Finlow Bates, the founder and chief doom artist for the authorverse.io, Irina Heaver, well-known Web3 lawyer and venture capitalist, Mauricio Magaldi, digital asset leader at 11FS and the host of the Block Drops podcast, go check that out, and Giselle Motta, she's a future of work expert and inclusion advocate, really happy to have you here, Giselle. We're going to get straight into it and talk about what is the metaverse. These are people who are working with the metaverse as a concept, with the technology underpinning it, with blockchain, Web3 tokens, all of the above. And I want to get their perspective on what does the metaverse mean to you? So let's start with Rutger. When you think about the metaverse, what is it to you? Yeah, thanks uh, uh, for having me, Anthony. So yeah, for me, it's uh, very much a moment in time where my life and uh, the society I live, work, ha have fun in is truly digital native. And to be more specific, online native so internet native and um, that doesn't mean digitized like going from what we already did offline to a digital form no it it really means internet native into what let's say the bowie sense of the word that it is a fundamentally different paradigm where the legacy world we're looking at as in the institutional paradigm with all of its boundaries are gone and that we're dealing with networks of collaboration that span worldwide that the spatial web is in Included in this is for me is a no-brainer, but the, to me it's it's much more this this digital society that we are uh, then uh, living in with its own forms of ownership, economics, governance, and and cultures. Awesome start, love that. And just for those who haven't heard the term before, what do you mean by the spatial web? Well, it's it's uh, the the three D web, so to say, uh, where the people activities come uh, together in a space where uh, you can be actually together to to do those activities we know this from gaming uh, obviously but this is only like part of it to me that that is just part of of, of a much bigger thing nice great intro straight out of the gate no warm-up Irina I'm going to come over to you you spent a lot of time working with startups supporting startups venturing and lawyering for them in this particular space What's the metaverse to you? I'm gonna be um, a very typical um, adversarial lawyer here, just like last time when we, um, when I was the devil advocate um, arguing against NFTs. I've uh, taken it upon myself to argue against the metaverse and anything else. In addition to being a lawyer who likes to be uh, very argumentative, I'm also a Bitcoin maxi. So, any project that comes out there and says, I have this amazing land, just give me your Bitcoin for my very, very super rare picture of a pixelated monkey that lives on this piece of land. I'm always very, very suspicious. I'm as suspicious as you would be when you're in 7-Eleven and you're um, considering to buy this sushi or not. Probably you should think twice before you do that. And I am exactly like this before I put in my hard-earned money and I work really hard and I'm sure all of you do. So before we put our hard-earned money into a, a pixelated land where a monkey lives, we have to think very, very hard. But of course, um, uh, of course, I hope you understand I'm being a bit facetious and there are a lot of shit projects out there that giving good projects bad name. But there are, of course, wonderful projects. Some of my clients are building metaverses where students will get together and um, be given educational cons uh, content. Because as you all know, in education, uh, if you're enrolled into an online course, you have less than something like 5% chance of completing, completing it, which is ridiculous, right? 
but that's the that's the situation but if you gamify it if you make it challenging and interesting i'm sure there are um, you know the chances of competing uh, completing that education would be higher so what is the universe for me well that's a big unknown we're just starting we're just looking into that so I am going to reserve my judgment and I'm going to be super, super skeptical and I'm going to be super, super cautious with my own hard-earned money and with my clients' money as well because I represent venture capital funds as well um, and before we put money somewhere. But that said, I also like to touch things uh, myself. I like to play things with myself. I have a couple of land slots in um, metaverses where I'm not going to mention, you know, no free, no freebie ads. If they want ads, they can reach for you, to reach out to you and, and pay for ads. And I have uh, my VR set and I had it somewhere here as a prompt and I cannot see it anymore, so I'm not sure where it went. But after literally half an hour of being in this metaverse land, uh, wearing this thing on my head, I even have a little weight, you know, to sort of counteract. I I got a horrible headache. We are so early when it comes to technology. This is completely unmanageable. What are we going to do in this metaverse? Are we going to live there? Probably not just yet. But any innovation is good. Any experimentation is good. Just don't put in your kids' college fund into that. Love that, Irina. And it wouldn't be a roast without you playing the argumentative lawyer. You do it very well, and we're very grateful for that. So for you, it's somewhere between 7-Eleven sushi and a headache. Um, so <laughs> if we can summarize it best, but you are actively engaged, which I love. Keir Finlow Bates, you are the master of the orthoverse, the man who has broken all the rules in creating metaverse propositions. Not that I know if there were many to start with. What is the metaverse to you? Well, I think the interesting thing here is that for once we actually have a playbook. There's a science fiction novel from 1992 by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash. And Stevenson introduced the term metaverse and he provides a reasonably good description of something that you could build with the technology we have today or that we will have very soon. So when it comes to the metaverse, that's kind of what I think it should be in that you have control over your own identity, you have control over your own possessions, be they uh, money in that world or land, and it's immersive and it's uh, massively multi-user. So that's kind of what I feel it should be. Uh, probably the least important part, as far as I'm concerned, is the 3D virtual nature of it, um, because I personally find a good novel as immersive as uh, a headset rendered world. But then there is what the rest of the world out there is deciding on a metaverse should be. What I noticed there is the individual companies that are promoting this have very specific agendas as to what they want it to be. So if we take, for example, Meta, um, who have gone wholeheartedly into this space, uh, for Zuckerberg and co, it all seems to be about virtual reality. The whole focus seems to be on 3D rendered worlds with headsets. You know, so that's the side that they're promoting. Other projects maybe promote the idea of land ownership. Um, and I'm not seeing anything that pulls all of them together in any kind of meaningful way. It's the usual problem with a, a new concept gaining traction that everybody starts focusing on individual components and fails to see the bigger picture. So um, I think that's my summary. Good start. And to summarize maybe there, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of everything. We've got lots of different technical capabilities we can pull from, but maybe we haven't yet settled on a, at a clear definition, or maybe by the end of the show, we can. Giselle, over to you. I'm really grateful we've got you on the show as a future of work expert, as somebody who focuses wholeheartedly on inclusion as well. Those are very important perspectives when you think about any digital and non-digital experience. What is the metaverse to you? I think it's like adults trying to figure out what kids already figured out a long time ago. So I think there's so much hype around this term that we call the metaverse. But if you think about it, children have been playing in immersive experiences for a long time now. I don't think the metaverse is some new brand new concept. In fact, there's organizations that have been putting out, you know, more immersive experiences like almost 20 years ago, people were already working and, and moving and creating spaces in which they could live, play 
play, socialize. So what is formed into today has taken on a new dimension, right? We can do more. We're, we're conceptualizing what we can do more with it, but it's not new. And I, I think right now it's it's becoming more popularized uh, as far as a term that's being thrown around a lot and what people are trying to do as far as trying to like make money off of it. Brands are flocking and trying to do the most that they can to get around this concept. But ask a little kid, ask my seven-year-old nephew who has been building in worlds for, for since I can remember that he had a tablet in his hand and he's working with spatial different types of like 3D animations. I mean, he's been in it. I could ask him. He's probably more of a professional added than me right and then another way that I can define it is it's an opportunity from a lens of inclusion I'm coming now it's an opportunity for people who might have limitations in the physical world to expand what they can do and how they're represented and their imagination can run wild in a virtual space and that's kind of what the project that I'm working on and we'll probably touch on it a little bit later but in essence um, you know imagine someone who in the physical world, they're limited because they were born without arms, without legs. They can't access certain places easily, right? They might have an amazing talent and skill set that they want to share with the world, but it's harder to do it physically speaking. But once you put that person in a virtual space and perhaps they can see themselves as an avatar in that space, uh, as they are, as they're represented physically, or maybe they want to take on an imaginary, you know, embodiment of themselves and imagine what that would be like. And so they could work in that space. They can share their talent and skills in that place. So this is, you know, a reimagining of what's possible uh, beyond the physical world is how I'm going to put it. But it's nothing new. I think we're hyping it up a little too much in my devil's advocacy. <laughs> I think it's a little overhyped at this point. I love that, Giselle, and actually as a place that's you know a great leveler for people of all abilities to come together and do the jobs that maybe as humans we've always been trying to do, but now we can do them better, differently, in a more enjoyable way, in a more engaged way, perhaps. Also need to shout out your nephew, get him on for the next show. I think that'll be a ton of fun. Mariso, a newly founded Londoner. Hope you're yeah. safe and well. Hope you made the transition in, in good order. And now at 11FS, how do you guys think about the metaverse? So thanks for having me. Love a good roast show. <laughs> when I think about the metaverse, the first thing that comes to my mind in terms of like reading through a number of definitions and something that ultimately would exemplify it is the devices and the scenarios and the Matrix trilogy, right? These guys are connected with uh, something on the cortex that they are born immersed in this universe that they recognize as proper and unique and, and owned by them. And then they get red-pilled and then they jump out of there. And there's a, another reality that is referencing that other reality that they knew. And now it's a different setting, which is even more apocalyptic. Um, but that context is like, okay, so I can be immersed in something else that I can acknowledge as a separate reality. And I love Giselle's examples because that's exactly what they do is it doesn't matter your shape or form on what would be, and I'm going to hear the quote unquote reality, but in that metaverse, you have another shape, another form, maybe other gender or other physicality, and you can do other things. And the interesting thing about that matrix metaverse is that people within that metaverse that are completely immersed, they own their things. They, they have their jobs, they meet other people that are in the same environment. And the way we're seeing things, despite the migraine, evolve is to something similar to that. Obviously, not yet within the proper cortex connection, but still being fully immersed into that scenario. One thing that I find really interesting that we're arriving now and being someone that mostly focus on the ownership web three crypto side of these immersive universes is that now we have the combination of immersion and ownership in the same setting, which kind of evolves towards that matrix type of scenario, but still is something that we're able to develop and mature. And um, I think we're going to find ways of using all of these technologies in much, much better ways. So just, just an exploratory example, we keep talking about skewerfism, you and I online, Anthony, and I would love to be just a blob of light on a metaverse with maybe a couple thumbs 
And, and that's it. That would be a different embodiment, a different experience to see what's out there and how that new form interacts with everything that exists and will come to exist in that, in that scenario. So yeah, and as a proud Alberto version, <laughs> I would love to see how the underlying technology as Kier is exploring is, is pushing the boundaries of what's possible with the existing technology, but also which use cases are going to be necessary for us to have a functioning society, as Richter mentioned, uh, in this new environment. So there's a lot to explore. And in a very weird comment, I really like that Zuckerberg moved the name between Facebook to Meta because that forced a bunch of people to talk about this. I don't think we would have the hype we're seeing now if they didn't, the same way they did with Libra. And then that pushed the whole stable coins, CBDCs discussion in the world of finance. They did the same. And you can't discount the impact that this organization, and especially this gentleman, have on all of the, um, all of the technology and the, the, the commerce and the online uh, experiences that we have. There's a lot of very, very smart people in that organization. And uh, other than the take rate, that's completely absurd that they're proposing. I think there's a lot for us to explore, maybe challenge, and then flip it into something that most of us believe that will work. Love that. And I really like the Matrix analogy as well, because I think if I, if I think back, I mean, those were foundational movies for me growing up. And I think there's some analogies or some commonalities with what we're seeing today. Yeah, I remember seeing product placements in the Matrix movies, right? Anybody else have the Nokia flip down phone where you kind of put it to your ear and you hit the button and it flipped? Like that was that was the coolest probably back then. But um, I'm sure there were a bunch of other product placements. There were protocols right? To be able to get in and out or to off-ramp, maybe on-ramp, off-ramp. I don't remember ever seeing a crypto wallet or PFPs in the Matrix. Humorism. Yeah. You know, maybe it didn't fit back then, but um, that's a really, really interesting, interesting example. And if you're into beams of light, I've got good news for you because Rutger is going to tell us all about Odyssey Momentum. For those who haven't checked it out, this is one of, for me, one of the most interesting, most challenging metaverse projects out there. I'm not going to do it justice. So Rutger, over to you. Tell us what is Odyssey Momentum? What's the genesis? What's the backstory? And how are you recreating or thinking about creating the metaverse? And in the process of doing so, what have you learned so far? Hey, wow. Where to start? Well, for, first of all, I, I really appreciate all the answers that were given to how we define the metaverse, because yeah, in the end, uh, nobody really knows what's it, what is it going to be. If you if you would ask people the same thing on define the internet for me, you get massively different uh, versions as well, right? So and that's always very comforting to me because that means that people can shape it to their own image and imagination. So it's it's very much depending on the culture that we are creating all together and what we think is important in that culture and in our society that will shape it. And so to step towards momentum, when we were creating momentum, which is a 3D environment in, in which you can do mass collaboration in the browser, when we were creating that, we didn't hear about the metaverse, nothing, anything. I also didn't read this novel. Uh, the metaverse was just not in our vocabulary. Also, no one was talking about it. It was, it was uh, 2020. We were talking about COVID, right? Our motto right now is that the metaverse is bullshit if you don't solve a problem. Well, we needed to, to fix a problem, an existential problem, because we were running an innovation incubator for corporates and governments and NGOs and universities to engage with the Web3 space from the perspective of well-defined complex challenges that could not be solved on an organizational level, but only on a multi-stakeholder ecosystem level. So you need a whole bunch of stakeholders who you don't necessarily know or trust to move forward in this particular challenge area. And that could be in supply chain, logistics, public uh, safety, healthcare, protecting rainforests, energy transition, what have you. So that program would run like uh, a season, like from September until June or so. And in, in April, we would have uh, the biggest physical hackathon in Europe. And we were expecting in 2020 for the fourth edition, over two and a half thousand people from about 60 countries. Then COVID hit and we were very reluctant to do it online because online hackathons with all respect of everyone organizing them, they suck. There is a lot of noise. 
The tools uh, to do it are insufficient. You cannot really do it in a Zoom call. You cannot really do it in Discord. So there is really not a space, not an action space, so to say, where you can get two and a half thousand people in the same space, bring in all the challenges and projects that are being created over these 48 hours with very uh, well-prepared teams and stakeholders and experts coming in, and then also reach your results in that action space, right? So you have the people, the projects, and the action all in one space. That was not there. Also in the existing 3D environments, there is no utility that enables us to really co-create and collaborate. So that's why we enabled, let's say, we needed to create our own stack. So we applied the principles of massively multiplayer online gaming to co-creation and collaboration in a complex multi-stakeholder setting. <laughs> yeah, it worked. At the peak moment, we had 1,600 people flying around at the same time. We had a multiplayer environment with 1,600 people flying in there at the same time. And Mauricio, you were talking about this being of light with some thumbs. Well, we've created a, a being of light. So everyone was the same avatar and everyone was this being of light, uh, bringing your bright lights to whatever project you would visit. And so you would have the earth. You could see the earth rings around it like Jupiter, because I think the rings are awesome. And then we would have platforms floating on that rings that would represent the challenge. And on that platform, there would be satellite platforms with the teams and they could decorate, they could give it a poster like you would have on a normal expo. They could put a meme there, they could do a description, but also people could vote on these projects and you could give wows to a team and then the platform would fly a little bit higher because of that wow. And so you could see really a good differentiation between the teams that have collected a lot of votes, they would fly up very very high and the teams that would need more help, they were still pretty much lower. And you could instantly provide feedback in the meeting space they had with video conferencing going on, but also asynchronously by leaving a suggestion or a question they could, uh, they could answer later on. So it was really a combination of asynchronous and synchronous communication and co-creation. And that was the, the birth, the genesis of the momentum stack, which we are now taking forward into a truly open source, decentralized, non-land based. So we don't sell these NFTs for land, that kind of stuff, but really see how we can scale our mission. And that is to unleash the collaborative superpowers of human beings. And we have learned that this cannot be done, period, in the institutional paradigm. Because the institutional paradigm, including having countries, limits the collaborative uh, superpowers of human beings. And so that's why the Web3 paradigm of networks, not of geography and conquest, but networks of collaboration and time are so attractive to us. Because there it doesn't matter if you're eight-year-olds or 88 years old. What is your background, even political, if you can connect on a level where you are passionate about and where you really want to achieve something together, we want to provide the environment there that enable you to succeed in the way that I appreciate the internet for, without any limitations, including, let's say, making sure as an ecosystem or network that the costs of doing that are as low as possible and that there are no hidden mess-ups. Without wanting to double-click too deeply on that for the sake of time, but if, if you could kind of distill down what you've learned, I mean, you, you've gone from having the biggest blockchain hackathon in Europe, maybe even the world, to pivoting that into a fully digital space before oh. the term metaverse had even been invented. If you were talking to other builders out there or people who were interested in the space, what, what's been kind of the one or two important learnings that you've taken away from this process? In the process of going online in this space, uh, at first you look at, okay, you had this physical space and you see a lot of people recreating the physical world and you see a lot of people recreating the old ways of doing things. And we see that all, all over the place, of course, it's called digitization. And that's also where land sales come from and uh, why people are building buildings, right? We quickly learned that to get towards the true essentials of what we wanted to accomplish in terms of how people connect, how people move from conversation to co-creation to collaboration to results, that we had to let go of all the forms we used to know 
and reach for that essence and build it completely from the ground up in a way that it makes sense in a digital native environment, which is completely different, of course, than a physical environment. Just as an example, in the physical hackathon, at the end of the hackathon, we would do a, a group photo. Well, doing a group photo after such a hackathon with 1,500 people or even more, it's all the accumulation of the energy and, and all that stuff. You don't do that online. And then trying to fit this in maybe with, oh, we should do that maybe in a Zoom call with, with uh, two and a half thousand people. And it's just not the same thing. Uh, so we found a completely different way of creating this kind of picture, but then in a completely different form. And that resonated really well. So you, can, you, you get a completely different output that reaches for the same essence. And that was a very, that's a very exciting journey for us all the time because we've learned that the metaverse is not so much interesting for the things you already know that you are doing, but it's interesting for the things you, you're not doing yet and need to find out. The same thing for having a social network in there. It's not for the people who you already know, like Facebook or LinkedIn or what have you. It's for the people who you don't know yet and want to know and potentially want to collaborate with. And that's the clip we, we continuously do, is uh, not to recreate the things we already do or know, but to reach for the things we don't know yet. Love that. I mean, even just thinking about the why do we have buildings, right? In the physical world, it's, I guess, for storage, security, mm -hmm. and weather. And none of those things digitally are necessarily pervasive problems. Giselle, I want to jump to you because, again, kind of providing maybe a build on what Rutger has already told us. You know, you've been working on projects specifically around inclusion and future of work. Tell us what you're working on, how it relates to the metaverse, and specifically for people out there who are building their own projects. You know, what are the pointers you would give them or the learnings that you've taken away so far? Yeah, thanks. It's called a Nifty Collective. And I love what I'm hearing because if you really take a step back and you listen to people, it almost sounds a little bit esoteric the way that we approach kind of our projects and how we explain them. It's because we're trying to recreate something that even comes from a sense of frustration of what we have not seen in our physical and even digital worlds, right? And so whether that's creating a social network or a place where people can collaborate and come together to, you know, be brilliant with their talents and skills and collaborate in that way, like, like what we just heard, or whether it's a project like what I'm doing and it's Really, I am just trying to interject and include people with disabilities into spaces that they are left out of. And that is basically what that is. When you go to a lot of these gaming platforms or you go to some of the platforms that exist today, even on the metaverse, or even if you look out in the world of like NFTs, you don't really see represented a lot of diversity. You don't see people like me, myself, I'm an Afro-Latina, I'm Dominican, my parents are immigrants into the United States. I'm a woman of color, as you can see. What you can't see is that I'm dyslexic, so I have a neurodivergence uh, or a disability that you can't see. And so how do I bring my full self into like a new space where I can be reflected there and I'm not left out, right? So, and how does somebody who, like I said, maybe they're limb different, they're missing uh, digits or they're missing uh, limbs or something happened and the individual uh, has any type of disability, right? We have real people from around the world who are advocates for disability inclusion. They're always frustrated around how inaccessible experiences are in the real world and then how much they're left out of like emerging technologies. So these people, they are uh, voices and, and advocates, they're musicians, they're actors, they are authors and speakers. And I've gotten together with them and I created their digital self um, in the form of, you know, instead of them having to become like a blue monster or an ape, right? Like it was mentioned earlier, Irina mentioned, you could be a monkey, you could be this and that, you could be Snoop Dogg the rapper if you want to in one of these experiences. But can you be yourself if, again, you were born with a condition called hypoplasia? One of the guys in our collection, he's based in the UK. His name is Isaac Harvey. He was born with hypoplasia, meaning no arms, no legs. The feet that he does have are inverted towards his body and they're not fully developed all the way. But we made an avatar that looks like him because if he wants to play and he wants to show up in these spaces, and if he wants to, we've also created his avatars an NFT that he can own. So I'm just being rebellious 
artist really and trying to inject a different notion of what it means to have a digital identity and make sure that you're included in that space. And so I've done that with a series of different people. Um, we have over 20 something now people and we're continuing to grow that we've created and we're curating it like that person by person. It's a small project, but because we're representing real people and we want to get it right. So even just yesterday, I was on a call to give you a quick example of how we're using this in the metaverse spaces and what I've learned. I was on a call yesterday with a group of, of professional musicians and artists from around the world who have disabilities. And I don't know if you all, for example, know Galen. Uh, she was featured on an NPR concert uh, series for like Tiny Desk. She is a small, uh, like a little, she's a little person. She's in a wheelchair and she plays the violin. And she's in a virtuoso like musician, beautiful at what she does. Just one example of people, but she, we were having a conversation about creating an avatar and making her have concert experiences where she's playing in the metaverse spaces or she even has an avatar where we'll create it as her own nft that she can use and she could use this as her digital identity etc but imagine the types of like the constraints that fall when you're able to go into an immersive space and you can see yourself as you are if you want to, because you could still be snooped out, you could still be an ape in one of these, if that's what you want to do, that's up to you, right? But to have the agency and the choice to be yourself is what we're trying to provide. It's that choice that doesn't exist today. And so that's an example. Uh, we were at Viva, we were featured at Viva Tech this year in Paris. It's a European conference uh, with tech owners that come together. Speaking of Meta, uh, they've spoken, Bill Gates has been there in the past, like they've done amazing things. And for the first time, we brought disability inclusion to an event like that. So when you went up to the signage of this big event in Paris, you were able to take out your phone and see our character in a wheelchair without his arms, without his legs uh, at the signage. And you can approach it and interact with it in augmented reality. And so that was something that a Again, we're just being rebellious and trying to like push the envelope to say, hey, if we're going to have these worlds, we're going to make sure that people are not excluded from it, you know, point blank. That's what we're trying to do. Also, one more example. We have an individual with a disability who, if they take hormones uh, to transition into what they would wish that they would appear like in life, right? Because we have, there's a lot of people in the world that identify as transgender and or non-binary. And some people go ahead and take hormones to transition into that. Well, this individual doesn't have the choice to look like what they wanna look like because their particular disability, if they do take hormones will cause, uh, it's gonna probably lead to cancer um, and they may die. So this individual, if you hear them talk, and whether you agree with that lifestyle or that choice or that identification as a person or not, the point is, do we give people choice to be represented as they want to in the world, right? That's a part of inclusion. It's just, it's about agency. So this individual, since they can't transition, they said, if I could, this is what I would look like, because they were born as a signed female by birth. But they said, if I could, this is what I would look like. I would look like a male who had a beard, but I would also wear glitter and I would also wear makeup and I would also do these things. And it's interesting, again, whether you agree with that or not as an individual, this is a person who doesn't have the choice of how they want to show up in life. And other people do. They have the choice because they're not constrained by a disability. And I thought, how great would it be to give this person a chance to show up like that in a virtual space and have that identity if they so choose? And that's what it's about for us. It's this project is breaking down those norms, giving people a chance to be represented as they want. I think the important message to everybody is that, you know, accessibility is not just making text larger on screens. There's a much, much bigger universe, metaverse of individuals out there that we can enable, we can recreate worlds for them where they can be included and not feel marginalized. I mean, Web3 to some extent is not particularly hot on diversity some of the time. You know, we are oftentimes the conflation of finance and technology, which are not always the most diverse spaces, but it's getting better. And honestly, I, I would love more people to hear what you've had to say and link up with you because your experience and the stories that you can tell will help every builder to understand how to be more expansive, how to break down the orthodoxies of who the users are in, in a different way, which is fantastic. And now a pivot to the authorverse. So Kia, you've heard two expansive, maybe traditional approaches to how to build a metaverse. I know that you have, have done it very differently. So without, without ruining it for you and giving you the chance to explain what it is that you've done, tell us about the authorverse, tell us about how you've gone about it, and tell us what you've learned on the process. Right. Well, 
uh, hearing Rutger and Giselle talk, they're doing really valuable and sensible stuff. So uh, I guess I'm providing the light relief here in that the authorverse did not set out to do anything particularly commercially valuable or societally valuable. It was really just a game, an experimentation to see what me and a, a fellow programmer who's a Corsican but lives in Thailand could come up with. We never had a roadmap. It is literally wake up one morning and think, I'm not going to do my sensible daily job today. I'm going to do something in the authorverse. What can I do? And it just kind of grew from an initial quirky NFT contract that allowed me to create one NFT in every single Ethereum wallet. And then me and Richard thought we would try and move this forward. Um, we tacked uh, a domain name that I had floating around, authorverse.io, that I bought a few months earlier um, because I thought, you know, what kind of names that sound like Metaverse can I uh, grab up? And uh, that then led to looking at things like Decentraland and Sandbox and thinking, what is, what is going on with these land NFTs? What do they mean? Why do they cost so much? Um, I should disclose here, I do have a sandbox land token. Um, in fact, the authorverse is advertised using it, if you ever go to sandbox. But me and Richard were looking at these things and thinking, this doesn't look terribly difficult. And the amount of money that people are spending on, on it seems to be a bit insane. Can we walk down the same path, doing everything the opposite way to which you were told to? So if you take, for example, NFTs, everyone tells you you need to build a community, build up hype and enthusiasm on Discord, pay community managers to encourage people to join up, uh, have giveaways and competitions where you engage with, uh, where you encourage people to engage in what effectively is multi-level marketing tactics and make sure your NFTs all sell out in a day or two. And then you say that you're going to build a virtual world, a metaverse, where these tokens are going to have some kind of meaning, but you don't tell anybody what that is. Uh, and so on and so forth. So we did everything the opposite way. Firstly, we had this problem in that we had no scarcity because uh, 1.4 quadrillion tokens means that there's one for every five atoms in the earth, uh, which is about as non-scarce as you can get in uh, sort of Web3 space. So we found a way of making 10,000 of them special. We set up a Discord channel, which I think has one message every two weeks, something like that. And about six weeks or eight weeks ago, I said to Richard, you know, we're going to have to, we're going to have to build a metaverse. We're going to have to have a 3D world in which these NFT tokens make sense. So um, I've hacked away on it now for, I think, almost 50 hours. And I have a 3D world, a voxel world, based on some open, open source projects that uh, emulate games like Minecraft and Roblox. Maybe by the time you release this, I'll have actually announced it to the world. If not, people who watch this will have a sneak preview of what's coming, but I think I've dropped enough clues. And, and the idea going forward now is to build this 3D world based on the tokens, which actually have pictures of what the land will look like. So the virtual world will map those tokens into a 3D space and then just play around, see where we can go next. And I have no idea what we're actually gonna do with it. I've got some, thoughts about giving various people control over what they can build within the space, depending on whether they own a token, um, some ideas about how your identity can work inside this world, but it really is all up in the air. And I think the main thing that I'm personally aiming for is to give individual people control within that space as much as I can without it being a crazy, messy free-for-all. I'm thinking of it here sort of a bit like poetry, where you have the freedom to write about what you like, but if you decide on a particular form of poem, then you're stuck with a certain number of rules that you have to obey. So uh, I want to carry that over into um, the authorverse. We'll probably go with uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland as the uh, poem to go with, because I think that fits the theme of the authorverse, which is that we have the slogan, the authorverse is doomed. The idea is that Nobody should at any point think that by buying a token relating to this project or by getting involved in it, that this is going to lead to any kind of financial gain for them whatsoever. It, it may do. It's not out of the question, 
but that's never been the aim of the project, which again puts it in a sort of at right angles to all the other projects out there, which are very clearly all about enrichment and making a quick profit. So, uh, or maybe in some cases a, a not so quick profit, but nevertheless, the ultimate aim is to obtain as much money. Uh, that in my head has sounded quite jumbled, but I guess that's the author of this for you. It's not a nice, organized, smooth, planned project. It's a bit of a mess, and thanks to entropy, it's getting messier all the time. And in terms of recommendations to others out there, I mean, you've you've literally done the opposite of what everybody else, of the, whatever the received wisdom is of the metaverse. With all of that experience behind you, what would be your advice to other builders out there who are working with and around the metaverse? Well, I think the main thing is to question your agenda and your aims. If you've got any integrity or you have an actual moral code, and these things do not naturally come along with things in finance, for example, I think the thing to do is to ask, what, what am I trying to achieve here? What lasting impact do I want to have? What kind of impression do I want to leave on the world? Um, because when you look at some of the projects out there, you're left with this very soulless feeling about what is going on, that uh, the humanity seems to sort of get sucked out of you uh, as you uh, look at what they are doing. And uh, you can see it in terms of the ethical problems that various corporations have had um, with regard to the behavior of some of their staff, for example. It doesn't set us up for a particularly nice world. Now, I guess that's not surprising because we've mentioned two metaverse works of fiction, The Matrix and Snow Crash. And I think the thing to notice there is they are both horrible dystopias, right? So <laughs> when you think if the ideas that we're drawing from are built on concepts where we're presenting dystopias, um, you're going to have to be very careful with how you proceed because you may well end up with a dystopia too. And some people would argue that where things like social media have led us uh, means we are already living in such a dystopia. Similarly, if you look at the financial systems that we've built, I'm an optimist, even though the authorverse is doomed, and that I think we can do better. Thank you so much for that, Keir. And in all this, all this dystopia around us, still aiming for doom is, I think, in of itself a rebellious move. So uh, thank you so much for taking us through. It's time to get to the bit that everyone's wanting, everyone's excited for. It's time to do a little bit of roasting. It can be gentle roasting. It can be full on roasting. We can do as we please on the show. Let's get into it. I know you've all prepared some examples of stuff that you don't like. And Irina, you've been unusually quiet for the show. I'm sorry we haven't given you more airtime to date but we'll get you to start off the roast, if I may. I'm sure you've looked at any number of projects out there and thought, WTF are these guys up to in terms of their proposition? What's some of the metaverse projects that you've seen that you thought, this sounds like nonsense, this doesn't make any sense, or uh, even if you're not gonna call them out by name, what is the stuff that just gets your back up when you look at the metaverse? I like what Pierre is doing. He's trolling metaverse projects, right? Um, and I've seen so many of these projects, exactly what you described. We have this storyline, which we're not going to tell you just yet, but believe us, it's amazing. Uh, we have this pixelated picture of uh, whatever. And um, I know exactly how those pictures are generated. It's, you know, it's one week, one designer, and there's actually now softwares that generate those pictures um, very quickly. Um, it costs something like under $1,000 now to generate 7,777 pictures of a pixelated monkey or whatever it is. And you buy my very unique picture because it's so unique and it's so scarce. <laughs> it's just, you know, we can launch an NFT project right now among, amongst us, you know, within this uh, space we've been, within this time we've been talking. So I don't think they're scarce. I don't think they're valuable, those, those pictures or those images. And those images are JPEGs that are stored on a server somewhere. So today is, um, and if I'm con um, controlling the server, so today it's a server of a monkey and then a, a picture of a monkey, and tomorrow I can replace it with a picture of a, I don't know, a bird, right? Um, what you have, that valuable, super valuable token that you have, it just has a hash referring to this JPEG, right? So the whole thing is just, I'm really, really concerned about so many people um, losing uh, so much money, 
But the fun thing is, there are still people out there producing those projects, shooting those projects, and coming to venture capitalists asking for money for these projects. Um, so I'm a little bit um, surprised, uh, to say the least. But I don't want to troll them because you know what? Everybody hustles the way they can. You know, if, if somebody buys your uh, JPEGs, good on you. If you're an investor, so-called investor that is flipping those JPEGs, good on you. We all can hustle the way we can. Um, I have an article here in front of me dated 2009, and it's talking about Planet Calypso player sells virtual resort for $632,000. So here you go, before the whole crypto even existed, people were selling virtual lands back and forth. And yes, it looks like metaverse is a different thing to different people. For some it is a VR, for some it is a collaboration space, for some it's sushi from 7-Eleven to be very, very um, mindful of before you put in the money. But people have been doing it for even a way before crypto came uh, came about. So let me not give all the crypto people hard time, as I as I usually do. Who I want to roast today is a certain government that is opening embassies and government uh, offices within a metaverse, and it's all good and and. It's all absolutely fine if you government out there want to open an office in the metaverse, that's absolutely fine. But if in the real world, let's assume we live in base reality. I don't believe that, but let's assume we live in base reality. If in base reality, in order for me to get anything done in your country, I need to submit a signed, original, stamped document to do anything, be it commence a legal proceeding, be it renew um, a birth certificate. If I need to physically show up to your office with, uh, you know, 600 pages of them notarized, apostyled and attested, don't talk to me about opening uh, offices in the metaverse and going all web three and going all digital because you're just making, uh, um, you know, you're making a big fool out of yourself, right? In this reality, I have to jump through so many hoops to get anything done, but look at me, I have an office in the metaverse. So um, today I want to post those government offices that are doing that because it just makes no sense to me. I hear you. And the point you're making there, I think, is there are some important primitives to enable seamless, frictionless digital collaboration, transactions, et cetera, et cetera. Don't get me on wallets, public and private keys for the general populace at that stage. There's still a lot of work that we need to do before the rest of this fits nicely together. Forget about the wallet and the private keys and the public keys. Let me be able to email you the documents. That's all I'm asking for. You know, I don't need your office in a metaverse. Uh, in order to make my life easier and the lives of the citizens of your country, let us be able to email you the documents. That's all we ask for at this stage. It's not all that, not that complicated. So focus on that, like focus on digital signatures. That will be like so much more tangible and useful than opening an office in the metaverse. And on the topic of digital transformation, over to a man who's probably seen more digital transformations than he has NFT, PFP, profile pictures. Mauricio, a veteran of digital transformation, a veteran of technology implementation before blockchain was even a thing. Talk to us about what you disagree with, what you struggle with, what gets you frustrated about the metaverse. What are you gonna to roast today? <clears throat> The term I want to roast today is humorphism, for obvious reasons, right? Trying to replicate in a realm of infinite possibilities what you have in physical world, unless necessary, it's devoid of purpose, right? If, you, if you're a bank, which is my industry, and you're opening a branch in the metaverse, let me tell you one thing. We don't want to go to your branch even in real life. We won't be in your branch in the metaverse, not even if we have to. So in a sense, it's similar to what Irina was proposing. But yeah, we, we don't need an avatar in the metaverse doesn't need a cell phone in the metaverse. They don't need pockets in the metaverse, right? They could want it because that's a new experience, perfectly fine, but they don't need it, right? Because you're already immersed in the computer, by the way. So in a sense, I think 
the metaverses we're seeing today are all doomed with the exception of the Euroverse, because that's fulfilling a purpose. If it's doomed, then it's not. So I think we're seeing the, I'm not gonna say the first generation of metaverses, but we're gonna see a lot of evolution as computing power continues to grow, as blockchains continue to work on scalability. And I think, and I, I agree with uh, Rooker in a sense that at some point we'll have the majority of our relationships and, and experiences in a immersive digitized or digitally native world where we're gonna do things simpler, even governments were gonna work in that space, right? So I think we're in a very primitive situation. I think if I can draw a parallel, this is the GeoCities era of the metaverses, I guess. Like if you don't recall GeoCities is like the very first place where common people could have a website with HTML1. I, yeah, I'm that old. So yeah, this thing, let's, let's build for solving problems. Let's build with proper fundamentals, with proper economics. I mean, is, is this really scarce that you need to charge that much money? Well, probably not. So we have a saying in Portuguese, which kind of doesn't translate well in English, which is there's a fool and a smart ass get out of the house every morning. If they meet each other, business happens. So let's not be the ones, you know, enabling and oiling this type of business and, and let's be critical of things that are happening. I mean, if you have that amount of money that entitles you to buy such a pricey piece of digital land, maybe you should buy that piece of digital land. Maybe you deserve that. Yeah. And let's solve problems. Let's be efficient. Let's be more inclusive. Let's be more immersive and get people to collaborate together. You know, I think that's the purpose of technology. And you're talking about the whole thing of digital transformation. No major transformation was successful unless they solved real problems. They were, nobody's doing this for the sake of technology. Those that are, are probably going to be left out in history. So let's just build for people who need built. And for the Portuguese speakers listening into the show, let, let's have the full quote so we can hear it in its oh, suitable yeah, intended. Okay, yes. Okay, so part of my Portuguese. Se um trouxa e um malandro saem de casa de manhã, se eles se encontram, dá negócio. Beautiful. I'm going to try and put that on a wall somewhere because I think that that's a good <laughs> mantra for life. I'll, I'll type that out for you. <laughs> <laughs> Giselle, I'm sure you've come across plenty of frustration in your time working in inside and outside of Web3. What have you brought to roast today? What are the things you want to call out that just don't work for you? Yeah, I'm going to have to roast a couple of companies. One is a, a sneaker retailer. I won't, I won't put them on blast with their names, but I will say there's a sneaker retailer who thought that, you know what, we're going to put out our digital sneakers and we're going to allow people to, you know, wear them in this digital form. But what they did quite blatantly was show that really it's all about their brand and less about the people who are representing their brand. And so what they did is they just put their logo as the head, the actual head of these avatars. And so everybody's walking around with these huge feet just to showcase this digital sneakers, but the face was like this odd looking logo of the company. And so later they found that they needed to probably switch that up because wait a minute, we probably need to give people a chance to be represented as they are, right? What a novel idea. So they partnered up with an organization who creates these avatars, but even those avatars, although they're great, they are limited. So they've been obviously trained by a certain body type. And so if you're fuller and plumper and not a stick, and you know, then you have, you're still confined to that one body type. And I think that, you know, all these organizations that are trying to come up with like ways to represent themselves and have other people represent them, they're not really thinking about the people. They're thinking about their brand a little bit too much. That's one. Then there's another company who's a, who's a food uh, retailer and a restaurateur, and they made this virtual space. So speaking of the bank, right? We don't want to go to your bank in person. So why do we want to go like, you know? So this person did, uh, or this company created a way in which you can eat or have go have an experience in their restaurant. You're not eating, obviously, but have an experience to order whatever they serve in their restaurant in the metaverse. And they have an individual actually like working in there and they get paid in cryptocurrency. But really what it turns out to is like a dollar an hour. 
So I would say, hey, people, come back and think about, we can't put these efforts in, oh, we're going to be out there, we're going to be represented, we're going to do these things when you're not really thinking about people and the value of people uh, in that whole experience. So sorry to roast y'all, but that's what it is. That's a really important message as well. And actually, when you think about blockchain and open source technology and Web3 being an enabler for economic inclusion, for breaking down barriers of things just like you described in terms of hourly wage or living wage, as anybody anywhere can contribute to code, to DAOs, to anything anywhere, providing they have, okay, the limitations of an internet connection, the computer. But generally speaking, I believe that gives more opportunities than less. And to hear that, that shocks me. I'm very saddened by that one. Sorry, but that's already happening with like Axie Infinity, right? There's a, a Axie Infinity farms in Philippines and people are earning, you know, three cents an hour performing small tasks so they can, you know, mint this NFT and then they can sell it. So, you know, a Western person can buy it and play with it. That's already happening. And and it's actually quite scary. So um, I'm one of those. I love dystopian movies, first of all, because I think that's where we're heading. And this is just a, an option of dystopia, right? A, a vision of dystopia. Have you, I'm sure you've seen um, player number one people sitting there, you know, glued to their goggles just to get away from their base reality. Um, I already think we live in a, in, a, in a simulation and now we're creating a simulation within a simulation just to get away from, just get away from ourselves. And look at kids now, nobody's talking to each other. Everybody's living in their digital world. So I think it's just the whole thing is super scary. And for me, what scares me the most is the economic inclusion. I don't really talk about banking the unbanked because that's not what I care about. I want the bank to get unbanked. I want everybody to be in Bitcoin. Um, but this economic inclusion and the economic participation, right? If you have the farms of people in developing countries where all they do is work for you know three cents an hour, uh, minting those NFTs, that's just scary. That's it's not the intended way, and, and frankly, it feels like I mean, that, that may be a fault of the game and the, the model, but um, it's definitely not what I would like Web3 to enable. Kier, I'm sure you've got a plethora on a range of different references that you've taken when p- planning for what the Authorverse was and wasn't going to be, but what are you going to bring to Roast? Uh, well, I initially I found I was heading towards the obvious targets. You know, there's a certain there's a there's a list of companies out there that I occasionally write about my dissatisfaction with, but then I thought, well, for a change, rather than having a somewhat more vicious roast, let's go for a gentle roast this time. And so, um, my target is going to be uh, sandbox.game, and I think I need to start with a uh, an honest disclosure here, which is I've just called up the analytics on the Authorverse, and I'm proud to announce that we have made. worth of ETH so far uh, in this project because we charge 50 cents per token minted. Um, This means if all 10,000 tokens are minted, um, I will have a cool $5,000 in my pocket. And I will really have to sit down and think very carefully what I do with such a ginormous sum. So you could tell probably from the way I'm talking that I don't mean this. What I what I want to talk about is if you take something like the Sandbox, they minted about 160,000 tokens. And these tokens currently have a floor price of about two ETH, so about 4,000 or so dollars. Uh, Sandbox held back 10% of them. So even in this crypto winter phase, they should be holding tokens worth about $4 million. Um, they've received VC funding, I believe. Or if they haven't, they were certainly trying to a while back. So they have a significant sum of money and they have a, a, a large number of employees. And as a result, they should be putting out an impressive offering. And so what I'm going to say now is go to sandbox.game and click on map to see what the sandbox has managed to produce with this vast pool of resources um, over the period of the last four years. And then go to authorverse.io and look at our map and see what Richard managed to produce on a Saturday afternoon with no cash whatsoever. And then ask yourself the question, 
given that these metaverse companies are raising hundreds of millions in some cases, why is it that what they are producing is at the quality that it is? Where, where is the money going? What is it being spent on? And why isn't it actually being spent on producing something that provides the people who invest into it with a, a decent experience? So that's my roast. I have some bad news for you, Kira. They've raised 400 million at 4 billion evaluation. Right. Okay. <laughs> so um, here's, um, you know, now that, you know, begs the question, you know, mm -hmm. even further, you, you thought like, you know, they have a couple of million, but they are, their evaluation is 4 billion. So. They're valued at 4 billion. Right. Well, uh, so I'm, um, I made a spoof valuation for the Authorverse where I use standard industry metrics. And in fact, I use two methodologies. And I think I came up with a valuation for the Authorverse of 20 million, but it was very tongue in cheek. But we decided that that's the sum that we'll sell out for. You know, everybody has a price and, and that's ours. You know, we have uh, 1,600 tokens currently revealed. You can almost walk around in our metaverse and you should be able to by the end of the week. Actually, no, you can walk around in our, me our metaverse, you just can't build in it yet. But then again, the sandbox didn't actually have their, it quotes, metaverse out until last November. And I bought a sandbox token because I thought it would allow me to actually get involved in it. Uh, but it turned out, no, owning a piece of land in the sandbox did not give you the right to actually do something in that metaverse. You had to buy something called an alpha pass, which subsequently became useless because it was just an alpha release. So there's all these sort of funny tricks going on where you kind of, you, uh, it, it's like uh, um, the sort of uh, the shell game where you think you know where the, the bead is under the three cups and they move it around a bit. And then when they lift the cup up, it turns out that there's nothing underneath it after all. So. Um, so I'm not surprised that the valuation is that high. And then the question really is just, just do what I said, go to sandbox.game and click on map and try and move their map around and then go to authorverse.io slash map and try and use our map. And, and honestly, think to yourself, $4 billion valuation company versus two guys at a weekend. Well, let me um, let me represent you, Kira, and get you a, a, a one billion. Uh, you said <laughs> twenty-five million. The rest, I'm happy to keep as my legal fees. <laughs> let, me, um, let me represent you and uh, sell your um, metaverse to. I mean, it's cheap. It's one billion. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to take that discussion offline. I mean, I, I think I could do some interesting and actually kind of valuable things with a billion. Um, I wish some of these companies out there would too. There we go, guys, anyway. creating links live on the podcast for anyone out there who's in the, in the business of buying up some, some metaverse content, some great developers, a very promising project and a little bit of doom on the side. The price is a billion and just reach out to Keir through his representative arena. You realize, Anthony, uh, the valuation of the company has uh, just gone up 50 fold. <laughs> That's the kind of exposure I can give to these sorts right. of companies, Keir. That's why people come on my show. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I finally know why now. Okay. Um, so to close us out, Ruha, thank you so much for tolerating all of the mispronunciations of your name throughout the full hour of the show. But to close us out, what are the things that you wish we could fix that, that people should do better? You know, maybe it's just as simple as devs. Can you just do something? Uh, I don't know. How are you going to close us out? Yeah, thanks for uh, for for the honor, uh, especially after so many uh, great contributions. And I've just learned that my investment in the autoverse is doing quite well. Full disclosure, I don't own any land in uh, the sandbox or the central land or what have you. So uh, you're quite a unique uh, relationship we have with the, with the autoverse uh, there. You also gave me a little bit more time to think about who or what uh, to roast. Since I bought my first Bitcoin in 2013. When I first learned about it, I was like, oh, this is going to change everything. But how, right? Then we broadened uh, the, the horizon with uh, making these, let's say, a, a, the same principle uh, programmable, which really came to the equation for me with colored coins, which also were mentioned in uh, Vitalik's uh, white paper. In the end, if we take a step back, we're, we're talking about things that have the potential to change the world for good or for worse. In my opinion, if we do any digitization or if, if we apply new technology, if we 
keep doing more of the same. If we look at where the world is at right now, it seems like that is going to set us back. Whereas if we are able to explore new paradigms, then yeah, at least we are in a space where we can learn. And what you, what you see in, in these times, in this zeitgeist, so to say, is that there are a lot of people that have a fixed mindset that are very, have a lot of conviction in their own beliefs and that have, that have a very hard time for whatever reasons to change their mind. And I don't really want to roast them because it's really hard to change your mind. It's really hard to have an open mind in a world that is devoid of proper leadership and all that kind of stuff and direction and, and stuff. It's, it's utter chaotic. Still, uh, I think if we just do our best to see how we can change our minds about things and how we can explore things that have never been done before, then uh, I think we can find each other there because this space is undefined and we can see on what kind of terms we can come, right? What is our common ground that maybe wasn't there before? This is more of a call for people to speak out on their passion rather than their conviction of uh, what is wrong or right, and then see how they can connect on a very different level. A very poignant, a very meaningful, and only slightly roasty end to the show. But I would have expected nothing less from you. One of the deepest thinkers I know, and one of the most positive people in the space. So, Rudiger, thank you so much for finishing the show on a high note. Thank you also to Irina, to Giselle, to Kia, to Mauricio, and obviously to Rudiger himself for joining and taking time. Please do go check out the projects we talked about today, the good ones and the bad ones. Make up your own mind get your own roasts going, talk about this with others, because ultimately we're still shaping what the technology capabilities that we think represent the metaverse are today. We know in some cases it's going to involve email and digital signatures. We know in some cases it's going to involve avatars and maybe even flip phones or pockets if you feel like, but they're optional. We've learned a lot and I've had a ton of fun. Guys, thank you so much for finishing out season two so well. Have a brilliant rest of your day and stay safe out there. Thanks again for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. As always, opinions in this episode are mine and those of my guests alone. If you want to find out more, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Check out some of the other episodes on the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast and check out the YouTube channel also called Blockchain Won't Save the World.